Welcome to Prime Alpha's interview series, insights from industry practitioners discussing their journey and their discoveries. Hello, my name is Amanda Jogia, the CEO of Prime Alpha, an online ecosystem bringing together alternative opportunities and their investors. I would like to introduce Ed Ryan, Director of Institutional Sales of StoneX, an institutional grade financial services network that connects companies, organizations to the global markets ecosystem through a unique blend of digital platforms, end-to-end clearing and execution services, high-touch services, and deep expertise. Welcome, Ed. Let's get started. It is such a pleasure to have you on. I'm so excited to hear your story and really learning about the industry and its background. So let's get started. And, And what led you here? Talk about your career journey. And thank you, Amanda, for having me. I really do appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience and all the people that are interested in your great products. So thanks again for having me here. I started in this industry 35 years ago. I started off just a kid growing up in Chicago who normal background growing up in the city itself, knowing and being aware of what was going on on LaSalle Street in a limited way, something you went to as a kid growing up here as a field trip to go visit the exchange and I had friends whose fathers were on the floor of the exchange, and it was just an always a fascinating place that I really wanted to see what it was like. So I started out as a runner, which is the classic story of how you start out in this business back then, and you make your way through. And that's what I did through various ups and downs, experiences, and I found my way on the floor, and I ran, I managed a few operations and desks for FCMs. Then I wanted to try trading myself. So I ended up going into the 30-year bond pit and I traded in there after working for some very successful and great traders. I was down there for 10 years and it got to a point where the risk was so great down there and the competition was huge. And at that time, the 30-year bond pit was by far the biggest floor trading pit in the world. And it was fascinating to be around it. And I'm so grateful to have had that experience that is now pretty much gone and no one could understand that unless you look through it. So I ended up moving on and going to a firm that was a small clearing firm that specialized in managed futures, dealing in CTAs, CPOs. At the time, hedge funds were much smaller. So we had small relationships with them, being exposed to family offices and individual investors who were looking for alternative investments. So I learned about that side of the business, which I was not exposed to when I was working on the floor, but I took my floor knowledge and understanding of what was going on down there and help people who were looking at this as a form of investment and how to go about it and helping them understand the markets through the way I saw them when I was down on the floor. I worked there for 15 years, ended up going to another clearing firm where I learned about the institutional side of the business on the investment grade level with banks and with large hedge funds and with proprietary trading shops. And I came to StoneX about two years ago as director of institutional sales here. Um, So it's been a great experience and it's been a great opportunity to come to StoneX and, and learn about their business and understand the global scope they have and what they can help people with in, in the trading world. I think it's so interesting because you probably started a little bit before me. I started my career in the mid nineties and there has been so many changes in the world of trading. I think 
if you could just give us a little bit of overview of the history and the evolution, because I mean, you talk about the pits. I keep thinking about like the movie Trading Places. Exactly. It doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) No, it doesn't. That's a good example for people that don't understand what that world was like then to give you a glimpse of what it was and how it operated. Being down on the floor was a fascinating thing because when you were down there, everything was happening so quickly. Everything, decisions had to be made very quickly. And you think about the computer age and the efficiencies everybody says we've accomplished and how much better trading online is and trading through matching engines is and all of this. And it is faster and it is better and it is more efficient for doing a lot of things. But what we did worked. There were ways it worked that no one could understand. And everybody always wants to know, well, how in that madness did you know you were communicating with the person that was hundreds of feet away from you and the hand signals and all of those things that no one understood. And the way the trading world then worked was your word is your bond. So if you said sold or you were doing something and you were trading with someone, if you backed out on that or reneged on that, it was pretty much the end of your career, especially if a lot of people got wind of it or saw it in the pit. We were all standing in there together. Everybody watched each other. Everybody knew what was going on. It was a fully transparent market. And it was a very efficient market. Could it do the volume that the electronic markets do now? No, it can't. It's not possible. But there were a lot of efficiencies that were lost in the translation to going over to electronic markets. So when I started in the business, it was all pit traded, communication person to person, It was all located in one central location. Price discovery was that way. It was a zero-sum game, which it still is, but there were limited hours of trading, so the volume concentrated during those hours. And then as I was exposed or saw what was happening first in the option markets, tablets coming on the floor, electronic trading happened long before there was an iPad or any kind of electronic communications. It was happening on the floors of the exchanges already where options traders wanted to get their delta and their information live. First, they did it with sheets of paper. Then they translated over to pads or terminals that they would carry around with them that were completely autonomous that they could use to do their analysis. And then it naturally graduated to the exchange saying, well, we don't, why don't we just do this ourselves? And the race for competition to get fast and the competition to have the trading go electronic, which certain people believed it never would happen. It was fascinating to see that happen right in front of my eyes in terms of what I knew from the trading world when I left the floor to you fast forward to almost 20 years later or 15 years later when I came back and I went to the floor for the last time. I walked down that pit and it was completely isolating compared to the day I left with the buzz and the excitement going on and the noise still happening and all of that happening to going down there, seeing the sadness of what it was now, which was purely on a screen with a bunch of traders that I still knew sitting around waiting for an opportunity to do small trades that may happen in the pit or needed to happen in the pit still. I vowed after leaving that day, and that was almost 10 years ago, that I would never go back on the floor again because I didn't want to see it the way what it turned into. I would just prefer to be in the industry and do what I was doing the way it was going to be going forward. So yeah, it was quite a jolting change compared to what it was with the bustle of the colored jackets walking all over LaSalle Street. The same in New York, that's what they experienced as well. So now when you're down here, that's all gone. It's all, that whole world is gone. 
That is incredible. Thinking back on the last three decades, what was the most interesting thing that comes to your mind right now that's happened in the trading world? I think definitely, and I already touched on the electronic nature of what changed, what that change brought to the trade, right? The culmination of all of those competitors, the various exchanges all over the world that were at one point independent and owned by their members, okay? To go turn them into publicly traded companies and watch those publicly traded companies just gobble up the competition and basically turn it into two competitors for the futures world, the ICE exchange and the CME, to watch what happened there was amazing. No one could have predicted, first of all, that the CME would have been the winner in the futures game that came out of that competition because CBOT was always the old white lady, as they might say about the futures world. They were the original exchange started in 1849 and started with the grain markets and understanding how to offer hedging and risk opportunities for what was happening in Chicago then, which was major development in both the train industry coming through here, the lumber industry that was brought in by the trains and the shipping up to Lake Michigan, the grain industry that was brought in up Lake Michigan from all over the Midwest and all congregated here. And the need was created for these exchanges. So to see all of this coming into play and then watch these companies consolidate all of that power and history into one or two places. ICE owns New York Stock Exchange now. So that's an example of something that's been swallowed up whole by what's going on with this exchange model that was started in Chicago in 1840s and how it's just taken over the globe and given opportunity for all of us to speculate and also lay off risk. So that is fascinating to me how it consolidated so quickly. And then it consolidated on the clearing level as well. That was another consolidation that happened. There was one thing that you said that you talked about, like the human element. And when that got moved to electronic, certain efficiencies were gone. Yes. What is that? So um, when I was in the pit and I was trading, you learned the trade and you stood there and you could tell who the players were in the pit. So there were brokers and there were locals. Okay. Locals were speculators. The brokers were there to fill paper and do a job for their customer. The local's job was to move that paper around the pit. Okay. My job when I was a local was to take small amounts of risk as fast and quickly as I could, getting in and out of trades, a number of trades all at the same time. I didn't want to have an opinion, right? I just wanted to take advantage of moving the spread and then moving that trade around the pit in an efficient way and being there to facilitate those orders for the brokers. Broker's job was to take the orders given to them from either major banks, major food companies speculators that were managing funds and money and filling that paper in the pit. So we understood who the brokers were filling for, and we knew what paper was real and what wasn't. So if I'm a local standing in the pit bidding an offering for 200 lots, I'm not to be dependent on in terms of a market because I could change my mind quickly and turn my hands around and say, sell this instead of buy this. The brokers, on the other hand, they were there to get their paper filled. So you could depend or lean on them, as we used to say. If they were two bid for a thousand, you knew that was a good bid, and it would be very difficult for them to pull that bid quickly 
So that was something we could understand. We could understand that Citibank was too bid for a thousand because this broker filled 30-year bonds for Citibank. Okay. So having that knowledge and information made it something that allowed us to do our jobs efficiently. When you go to a screen, the way it was set up, it's blind. Those bids and offers don't mean anything in reality to whether or not they're real or will be there. A computer can bid an offer for two bid for 3000 and if they start getting hit, they could pull that bid or offer and cancel the order. And we don't have a way to identify on a screen what people are really doing or what their real intentions are. And that blindness to the market, I think, eliminated an efficiency. And they're worrying about, and I think it makes people suspicious of what's going on. So there's players, large trading shops that don't want you to see their position or don't want you to know who they are. And I understand that. And they don't want people to be able to evaluate their trading strategies, all of those things that could happen. So that's why they prefer to be this way. But I think there's something that gets lost in there and could cause problems for market trust because you don't know who those people are that are buying and selling those trades. Exchange does, everybody else does, but it's not public knowledge. And I think the pits were created for transparency when they were created to have an understanding and know who the players are. So that's my little sandbox here or my box I'm standing on to make my pitch for more transparency being better. I, I'm all about transparency. Stonex is such a mega firm and it's evolved so much. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution of the firm and how you guys have kind of been in step with the evolution of the industry? Yeah, Stonex is a definitely an interesting story. Another interesting part of the fabric of the trading world in Chicago. So Stonex is one of the first clearing members. It was originally founded by a gentleman named Ira Stone. He had an egg delivery business and he needed to hedge his risk in the egg business. And CME was starting out and he decided this makes sense for me because of my business delivering eggs and butter and other things that he needed a way to hedge against the risk of when he was buying the product versus what was going on in the real world out there. So he started a clearing firm in the 1920s. And it's one of the oldest members of the CME. Similar track to that, we there was a company in the 1970s called INTF, which was a broker dealer. And they initially wanted to consolidate their business and have a futures on. So they merged with FC uh, with Stone and they became FC Stone, INTL. Okay, Farmers Commodity and Stone and INTL to create 10 years ago, a company with, I believe, five or 600 employees at the time. Fast forward to today, we have 370,000 retail accounts, 50,000 commercial institutional and payment clients all over the globe. We have 3,200 employees. We deal in 140 global currencies in 185 different countries. So, I mean, we are a truly global firm through all these acquisitions that have been made in various parts of the world. And our goal is to be a market for the world, basically. So we want to connect you to the markets that you are interested in or need to facilitate your business. And that's what we do day in and day out. I love kind of that vision and mission of the firm. 
So just to make it a little bit more tangible, can you explain more about like how StoneX helps its clients? What are the various ways that people can think about it, maybe in some real life examples? To the hedge funds out there and the money managers, we are a way to access access the markets, right? So whether it's exchange-based or you're looking to trade FX directly, or you're interested in trading over-the-counter markets or EFT markets, those all can be done with us. Different divisions. I personally am in the institutional clearing and execution part, so we mainly deal with exchange-based products. That is our focus to give people access to the markets. We're offering the best liquidity, the most transparent prices, and allows them to focus on their execution, their money management, what they're doing for their clients, while we take care of the nuts and bolts of making sure that clearing happens. We guarantee those trades for them with the exchange so that when the trade happens and we go to our back office to process those trades, and then we have to go and distribute those trades to the individual's accounts that are trading with us, that is done in a seamless fashion for the client. That is really what we try to do on a daily basis is create markets. Sometimes those markets are created out of whole cloth, not just exchange traded. So they come to us with a specific need, whether it's a food producer or a speculator, and we try to give them access to what they're looking to do. You have the depth of knowledge of the history, and you can really put yourself into the shoes of your client and really understand the nuances, like talking about the inefficiency pieces that have changed. I think that is so helpful for your clients to be able to have that multi-perspective to it. As technology is just exponentially impacting the financial sector, how do you see StoneX evolving in the future? We are constantly trying to get on the cutting edge of all technology, whether it's giving our clients access to their accounts in a very simple way and allowing that customer experience to happen in a very simple way across all of these complicated ways of doing business or trading. We have a huge IT staff right now that is constantly focused on improving that improving our connectivity, improving our global access. We have access to over 26 different exchanges. Outside of the major banks, I don't know of any clearing firm or trading firm that can give that access, give the client that access all in one place. So then to consolidate that access behind the scenes, so when they go look at their account, they can look at it in in a very homogenous way. We have to have the technology in our office that's reading that data, processing that data, and then feeding it back out to the client to make sure that they get the information they need from us so they can verify their trades, make sure their trades are distributed correctly and the pricing is done correctly. Before the podcast started, we were talking about old movies and books. So I'm going to ask you, is there a a book, a movie, maybe a documentary to watch that flex or explains a little bit about the industry or even StoneX? Yeah, I mean, I was a history major, so I'm fascinated by history and I'm fascinated by how things work because how they worked before a lot of times translates to how they're still going to work going forward in my experience. And looking at the world in that way and having that understanding is fascinating to me. So there's a book I discovered called The Splendid Exchange written by William Bernstein. The subtitle of the book is How Trade Shaped the World. So 
this goes back, this book starts out 3000 BC, you know, it's, it goes back to the beginning practically of civilization in terms of how people have looked at commodities and trading and what that meant to the development of the global impact it's had on understanding those trades. And it first started out as you only trade things of very high value. So whether it's spices or silk or that trade initially was all the world focused on. You grew what you needed locally and you made what you needed locally from simple products. But if you wanted something exotic, it had to be traded for. There was a high value in that. The book talks about how that shaped the worldview and what's going on in the world and how those patterns have changed geography, changed economics, changed politics, social status, all of those things. It's just a fascinating overview on world history taken from the standpoint of how trade has impacted that. One story that's interesting is when they were laying the first transatlantic phone line, the major funders of that phone line were the cotton traders based in New York and London because they could not get their pricing from the United States to London fast enough. They were losing money on that transaction. So think about the historical impact technology and everything else that was funded by this simple need to understand pricing in a faster, more efficient way. They laid this transatlantic cable that changed the whole world. Well, that's in line with what you were saying about how Stonex started with eggs. Yeah, a guy in the back of a car to be more efficient. Exactly. It was interesting. Another book, if you're interested in the trading history, more of a micro look at what happened here. It's called Futures, The Futures, I'm sorry. And it's written by Emily Lambert. And it's about the history of the trading exchanges, the modern trading exchanges as they were started in Chicago. And it really gives you good insight because it gives you access to meeting some of the individuals that kind of made the markets here, some of the great traders that came up in Chicago and and started out here and, and where they came from. So it's another interesting book to look at what this has done and how it's changed the, the way we invest and view finance. I love it. And I'm going to ask you what I ask everyone. So brace yourself. <laughs> what do you think is your superpower and why? I think my superpower is listening because I think it's critical to hear what someone's saying to you, not in a judgmental way, but to hear what they're saying and not lose it, but to hear what they're saying and have ideas flowing in your head consistently. And this comes from my days on the floor, no doubt about it. I had to process information very quickly. And when someone's yelling at you and spitting at you basically to get their count right or where they're at in the position wise, you learn to think on your feet and listen to what's being said and done. So I think that would be where I would focus on my superpower because I like to bring people together. And the first thing you have to do in order to do that and is understand whatever their needs, problems are. And that's the only way you can understand how to help them or fix that situation. Not everything can be fixed, but if you listen first, understand what they need and pay attention to that, and you stay curious, you'll figure out ways to help people. I love that. Ed, thank you so much for your time today. And I know I learned a lot. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Amanda, and hopefully this is helpful to the crowd out there that may be curious about what we're doing here at these clearing firms all the time. And even a lot of professional people don't always understand the nuts and bolts of what goes on. And and the old saying is, I just want to eat the sausage, right? You don't want to see how it's made or understand that. But 
it's important sometimes to get into the underneath the hood, as they say, and look at the car. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Prime Alpha's Visionaries and Innovators podcasts. As always, you can head over to primealpha.com to sign up to our email list, as well as check out our other podcasts. See you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any investment or any securities. Listeners should make their own investigations and evaluations of the information contained herein. Certain information contained in this podcast constitutes forward-looking statements. Listeners should not rely on these forward-looking statements. Listeners should bear in mind past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.